All right, we're back. I am so excited today to uh, do another edition of the Manifestor Mindset. I find that when I don't do these, I have a little bit of a hole in my heart because I miss everybody here on uh, on LinkedIn. And you know how it is with social media. You go in and out, you get busy, you get distracted, and then you sort of kind of miss the presence. You take a little bit of a break, get some headspace, and you're like, where is everybody? So it's nice to be back. And I'm so excited about the guests that we have today. I'm always excited, but I'm especially excited because I have a fellow guest shark today whose resume defies description. I would need two or three segments of the Manifestor Mindset to talk about Dan Lebetsky, but I'm going to do my best to showcase what makes him truly one of the greatest entrepreneurs in America. He's sort of stayed below the radar for a bit. We'll find out if that was intentional or inadvertent or it was, it was busy, but uh, he's kind of coming out and uh, we're the, America's getting to know him and doing a great job. So uh, Dan, so great to have you. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, man. Okay, so this segment, actually, I started doing uh, when the pandemic started as an outlet to just reach people, talk to people, uh, open my heart up, my mind up, you know, share whatever I know. Uh, and it's been great. And I've been doing them every week or so. And the common denominator is teaching people how to be a manifester, a completely made up word that is about combining the, the vision to see the future and see around corners, but marry it with execution. And I think people struggle with one or the other often. In fact, many of us have the vision, right? But we don't have the ability to execute. So hopefully through these sessions with amazing people like you, we uh, we give people some mentorship on how to do it. And the questions are already like the rapid firing here on the right. So keep sending your questions. I'll make sure I don't monopolize all this time. And at the end, we'll we'll, we'll open it up. But um, Kim, Dan, maybe we can start for a little bit. Your story, your background is so incredible. If maybe we, I know you've told the story a million times, but if you could take us a little bit back into your, your incredible family journey and, and and Holocaust to Mexico, if you give us a little bit of the background. Yeah, it is, it's a rare journey because I'm a confused Mexican Jewish American. Um, my father was uh, liberated by American soldiers from the Holocaust, from the concentration camp in Dachau. My mom was born in Mexico. Her parents had immigrated a generation before from Eastern Europe also but she was raised in cattle country in, uh, in Tampico, Tamaulipas in Mexico. And then they met in Mexico. I was born. Um, hey, before we talk about Mexico, can you, that is so extra. I didn't realize it was Dachau because uh, every time I go to Germany on business, I always make time to pay, you know, tribute wherever I am every single time to never be too far away from the Holocaust. I do believe never forget. And I go to Dachau uh, when I'm in uh, Munich, it's right outside there. I, I had no idea that's, that was his, Journey could tell tell us a little bit about your your grandfather. About my father, not my grandfather too, but also my father. Your father. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been there once, and it was extraordinarily difficult to me. Um, I didn't think we were going to go there right out the gate, but like it was, uh, I was having a lot of a great. I've never told this story, Matt, but it just triggered in me. So I'm sorry, I just, I just I feel so passionate about. No, no, no. I don't mind talking about that. I just, I'm going to tell you something I've never shared before. Okay. I was a student in France, and uh, with a lot of friends, having a lot of fun, and then I felt that I had to go do this. So I went by myself, riding uh, on a train, and I start. I was reading a lot of French philosophers, and then I went and experienced that how by myself, and it was the only time in my life that I had suicidal thoughts. And not because I felt so depressed that I wanted to do it. I just had a contemplation about life and, you know, thinking through the prism of all these philosophers that I was reading. 
And it was very scary. It was very terrifying to me, but I, I've never related to why people would even ponder something like that because life is so amazing and it's so beautiful. And when I got to such a dark place, um, I really quickly pushed myself out of there. And I think since then, I've really, really tried to uh, always build bridges and follow my dad's philosophy of trying to build light where there is darkness. There's a quote that's my favorite quote from a Rabbi Hillel that says, in a place where there's no humanity, strive thou to be a human. And like when there's so much darkness, strive to bring light to the world. Mm. And that was my dad's philosophy. Like he went through some horrible stuff. He was nine years old when the war started and 15 and a half when he was liberated by American soldiers. So along that journey, Matt, there was so much pain and so much horrible stuff that he witnessed. And he, he didn't pull the punches. He shared all of that with us. But what was really interesting about him is that he also made sure to remind himself and remind us about the leadership from courageous, kind people that rose during those dark times to save him and his father and his brother. And had it been not because of those people, I wouldn't be around, he wouldn't be around. And there were people that risked their lives to, to, to um, help them live. That's an extraordinary, amazing. Now, as you're talking, I'm just remembering walking through Dachau and the fact that everything was left intact is just so stunning. And and uh, it, that hate is still out there in the world. It's always important, I think, to never forget so we never repeat, right? And and uh, I'm sure you've read Man's Search for Meaning, you know, Victor Havel's book, incredible. But wow, yeah. you're- And I think it's, it's very important today to make sure that we build those bridges across the world and within our country. There's so much uh, polarization and so much division, and it's not easy uh, for you to listen to someone that has a different mindset or, or, or perspective or for you to accept the other. I was literally right before joining you, Matt, uh, listening to the audiobook for Sapiens, where they, where uh, Yuval Noah Harari talks about how we as human beings fundamentally are skeptical of the other. And I think we just need to really invest in not being scared of what we ignore because that's what terrifies us, right? The other. And we need to just reach out and connect with people and try to understand and try to listen. And in this day and age where everything is atomized, right? Like you have, you get your sources and the other side gets their sources. And if somebody's listening to Fox News all the time and somebody else is listening to MSNBC all the time, they're inhabiting different worlds. And how do you find a way to, you know, there is something called truth and we should try to uh, encourage people to not, to hold people accountable, not to lie. But it's so damn hard and we need to find a way to uh, to rebuild those bridges. Hmm. And so you, so your your dad got to see what you, what you've become and... Uh... Uh, you know that's a that's amazing, extraordinary. He didn't, he didn't get to see kind. It, uh, he, got to, he got to see the kind person that you became, though, and your values. Uh, you know. I think my dad, my mom's still with us, and I'm very blessed. And my dad, I think, got to be very proud because around the time he passed away, I had founded a movement to try to uh, bring peace to the Middle East called One Voice. And right before he died, he was like wondering what the hell happened. You know, my son went to Stanford Law School. He was going to be a nice Jewish lawyer. And, you know, my dad only had a third grade education, Matt. So you can imagine how important it was that I have an education. I was the first person in my uh, family to go to, to graduate from college, let alone to go to law school. And 
you know, Jewish parents, lawyer, they're really, really excited that their son was a lawyer. And all of a sudden I left all of that to start my company, PeaceWorks, and then to start this movement called One Voice, trying to build bridges between Arabs and Israelis. And there were many days where my dad and my mom just scratched their head and like, why is my son risking his life going to all these places to uh, do this stuff instead of... Uh, but ultimately, right before he passed away, I, I remember that I gave a, a talk with my colleague, Mohammed Daraushe in, in Los Angeles. And I remember that after the talk, my dad was teary-eyed and saying that he got it and he was very proud. But he never got a chance to see Kind. He never got a chance. In fact, Kind was born... He was born in his honor. We, we named the company Kind uh, mm. in his honor. Mm. And uh, he passed away the year that we conceived Kind. Wow. And he didn't get a chance to meet my wife or my children. So those are those are uh, regrets I have. But uh, I think about my mom had died too when I was 26. And I sort of made peace that parents know the trajectory that their children are on. They may not know the details. And presumably they know it from wherever they are. They get to fill in the blanks from above but they kind of know where you're going, right? And I always think my mother generally knew the destination. So I'm sure as your dad, your dad did too. But thank you for sharing that. I just feel this, you know, I saw some horrifying statistics about how many people are unaware of the, of the Holocaust. And I, and I truly believe that you just, we just have to stay close to it and keep reminding about what people have and what people are capable of and why we always need to remain vigilant against hate. And to your point, the otherness, right? And against hate of anybody, we can't just have the Jewish people stand against hate against Jews. We, the Jewish people, need to have stand against hate to everyone. Just like every person, white, black, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, atheist, all of us need to defend one another. Because if you're just trying to protect your own people, that's how society is getting trouble. We need to all stand against all forms of racism and discrimination. Yeah, that's and I, I'm, I'm on the board of ADL. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with ADL, yeah. but that's their sure. philosophy. They they stand not just against anti-Semitism, but against any types of hatred or racism against any other human being. Well, Jews have a wonderful tradition of doing that in the '60s, right? Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting a you know Goodman Cheney Schwerner. You know, they passed away in the '60s during voting rights drive, and I remember when I was in high school, created a debate tournament uh, in their honor. So there's a lot of great history. But all right, so where were you raised? Huh? I was raised in in, uh, in Queens. Grew up oh, in. Yeah? Uh, yeah, Bayside, Queens. Yeah, crazy tortured story. But dropped out of high school when I was 16 and got my GD. My mom, just me, her and I, and she was very sick. So I was sleeping on the floor in a mattress in a dirty apartment. And I just made a crazy decision when I was 16. That if I could drop out of high school and get to college, I could get a job making twice as much as working at McDonald's and as a college student. And that was the first insane you know, decision to buck convention. And I went back to my high school promise, you know, president of the debate team a year later. And I was like, oh, wait, the rules are designed for the average circumstance, but not the extreme circumstance. So when you find yourself some, somewhere on the extreme, you have to tailor life to suit your needs and purposes. And ever since I've been doing it my own. I didn't own know that about you. So that's, that's an amazing story. And then yeah. how did you end up? Uh, well, tell me real quickly about your journey. Yeah, the other, the, uh, the, well, that I always say, you know, how Warren Buffett, right? The number one really talks about is compounding, right? And I always say that compounding applies as much to money as it does to your career. So if you can get started a little bit earlier, make decisions a little earlier, like, I am a product of compounding, right? So I started at 16, got that, got the GD, uh, worked for a congressman delivering flyers, but because I didn't know how to write, he gave me a first job as a columnist at a newspaper when I was 17. And by the time I was 19, you know, Carl Bernstein nominated me for a Pulitzer Prize, you know, for uh, investigative articles that I was doing. Yeah, wow. great. 
Look, anybody could be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, to be clear. But it's nice to have it from him, a letter on my desk. But I won a bunch of journalism awards. And then I just kept saying, here is the problem. As I was like running down the track, alongside me was a mom who was slipping away, right? So more and more pain, just never slept for the first 26 years of my life, lived in a dark, lonely, depressing apartment that no one ever came into. So I was living one life externally as this young hotshot kid trying to make money as fast as possible to beat the clock, you know? And then uh, unfortunately, the day I became press secretary to the mayor of New York, she died that morning. So, you know, it's kind of my life, everything that, that most important things, all the lessons that matter happened in that like one day, you know? That's like you had a, a, a similar challenge. For me, it was very fascinating that one of the most painful years of my life, which was losing my dad in 2003, was also interestingly one of the most spiritually filled and professionally successful years. It was very odd. It was a very, it was a year when I was going to temple uh, twice a day to honor my dad to do a Jewish prayer called Kaddish and was enormously, you know, sad. My dad was everything to me. He was my hero. And yet I grew enormously spiritually because I think I, I was reflecting and meditating a lot when I was doing those prayers. And I think I grew a lot. And also it was a year where the One Voice movement that I founded really took off and made a big impact in building bridges between Arabs and Israelis. And it was also the year that we conceived Kind. And if you had asked me in 2002 or 2003, even as I was launching Kind, that Kind would become what it became, or even a fraction of it became, a, you know, I did not have that vision. I was excited about the idea and the opportunity. But it's very interesting to reflect that 2003 was such a pivotal year of pain that led to so much light. They often go together, which was an important lesson for me too. So on the most important, I was 26, youngest press secretary in New York, making over a hundred thousand dollars. Right, so finally, like we can take care of it. And then at that moment, and she had pleaded with me not to go to work that day, and I yelled at her too. I was just so tired of being a caretaker. You know, you no child wants to be a caretaker since you're since I was probably nine. And so I just was like, I wanted out. And then, you know, she died that morning. I'm just thinking like, ugh. And then, but it's an important lesson I take with me. The no one is guaranteed a happy ending and you have to write your own. Two, the power of the, the ability to ameliorate suffering is the best use of your time and energy in this universe. Because if somebody had actually intervened in my life anywhere between 16 and 26, she would have lived another 30 years. I would not have sometimes been thinking about driving a car into a tree. You know, you know what I mean? Like there were, th th it would have been a big impact. So I always think not to be Mother Teresa, like, but that when I think about energy and resources of money, the ability to redistribute that on behalf of somebody else who has no power or is less than or other than is more important than anything else that I could do with my life. So I'm, in some respects, I'm grateful it happened at the same time. If mine had just been like a happy bullshit ending, like that's not the true story for most people, right? But also, Matt, you're touching on, on the power of kindness because. You know, something that I learned through kind is that being kind is the only force in nature that makes the world better net-net, right? Because when I'm kind to you, you feel better, but I feel a lot better too. Like you, you both sides, it, it's so fulfilling to help and to, and to do that. And, and so, and also it takes a lot of strength to be kind because a lot of people think of kindness and like some sort of soft, mushy weakness because they confuse it with being nice but being kind takes enormous amounts of strength like you can be nice and be polite but to be kind you need to have the strength of honesty and to be nice you can just not cause problems but to be kind you need to 
solve those problems. To be nice, you don't bully a person, but if you want to be kind, you stand up. You stand up against the bully. You stand up for change. Like kindness requires the strength of a protagonist to to do something, to believe. Like you're walking through those streets and you see that sad person. And it happened to me so many times when I was in New York that I was it was difficult to reach out to a stranger that was in a bad moment because you don't want to invade their space and 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 you don't want them to call the police on you. But you know, to to have the strength to help someone that's truly in need at those times requires a lot of a lot of uh, commitment. I love the distinction. I never heard anybody say the distinction between nice as sort of a passive act, right? Which is sort of non-interference, but do no harm. And kind is a verb, you know, that you yeah. have to take an action. I want to look at the world now, right? All millennial focused brands like Allbirds and Everlane, some wonderful, great brands whose very mission is the company, right? And they, by the mere act of engaging in commerce, they're amplifying a social good, right? So the, you were there really early on this general phenomenon, right? You know, the people had always been donating a portion of their proceeds to XYZ, but like your whole philosophy about kind. I want to go back to the early days, the, the year, I guess, 2003, the year of the Genesis. What well, was if you want to, if you want to go to the beginning of that story, yeah. it started yeah. before because kind was born out of my first company, PeaceWorks, because through PeaceWorks, I learned what you discussed, Matt. I graduated from law school and both in college and law school, I had written a lot about how economics could be a force for bringing people together. I had just learned that economic cooperation can shatter stereotypes. When you're meeting each other, you discover each other's humanity, then you gain a vested interest in preserving those relationships. So if structured a symmetrical equality, you can have neighbors, uh, you can have economic uh, factors advance uh, relations. Not always. You can economic relations can also create tension if, if it's not structured properly. But under certain guidelines, economics can be a very positive uh, glue for society. And so, I right after law school, I started my first company. That's when I told you that my parents were like, "Uh, uh why did Wait, he, I left?" Did you practice at all? I practiced for like three months, and then <laughs> the Camp David uh, negotiations broke into the. Rose Garden Agreement in 1993 between Israel and the Palestinians. And I'm like, okay, I've been doing this for many years and people thought I was crazy. Now is the opportunity. So I took a leave of absence from my law firm, but I never ended up going back to my law firm. And I ended up starting this company, PeaceWorks, whose mission was to get Israelis, Jordanians, Egyptians, Turks, Palestinians, others to trade with one another. And then we would commercialize their products and sell them in the U.S. And our first brand was called Moshe Pupik and Ali Mishmumkin's world-famous gourmet foods. The name was a mouthful. Nobody could pronounce it. <laughs> so, we, so we changed it into Moshe and Ali's. And then eventually today the brand is called Meditalia. But but it was through cooperation between neighbors working together. Important and, point listening out there for a second. You have two people who went and got a law degree because I graduated Fordham Law, was supposed to start at Skadden Arps, and then just said, it's just not for me. But never be afraid to walk away. Never feel like it's a sunk cost. I love my pretty fancy degree on the wall. It's wallpaper, but it looks good. And I'm sure you're. Well, I think it helped me. I mean, I was intellectually, yeah, for sure. Let's solve on a crumble, but uh, only for a few months. But yeah. when I was in law school, I think it really helps you be a cleaner thinker and a more critical thinker. I think it helps. But uh, so once I did PeaceWorks, I did it for ten years, Matt. And a lot of people think that things are like overnight successes, but those 10 years were very, very tough. Like I would 
two steps forward, two steps backward. Like it was a very tough 10 years. And interestingly, I loved those 10 years. I didn't consider myself a failure at all. And my business was, you know, a $1 million business that barely could buy to pay salaries for the rest of my team members. But I loved what I was doing because it gave me meaning because I was trying to build bridges between people. And once I had the idea for Kind, the original idea was how could I make a healthy snack that I could feel good about eating that was made with like whole nutrient-dense ingredients like almonds and that when I'm on the go or when I'm skipping lunch or dinner and I'm on my desk and I want to eat something healthful, how can I eat a healthy snack that's not sugar as the first ingredient? And when I had that idea, my team and I wanted to come up with something that also had, like I had been bitten by the bog of social impact from PeaceWorks. And I loved how you could try to not just make money, but make your small contribution to make this a better world. So we thought about what could we do? And that's how we came up with the concept of kind, to do the kind thing for your body by eating nutrient-dense ingredients, for your taste bud that has to be delicious, and for your world by fostering kindness and empathy in the world. Mm. And, then, and then what was the state of the market when you first launched? What were you, what was your closest competitor at that point to a healthy bar? I'm trying to think back to when you launched what would have been out there at the time. So when we launched Kind in 2003, 2004, um, there was nothing with the transparency and wholesomeness in our category that ingredients you can see and pronounce is our legal trademark. We use transparent wrappers, we use whole almonds. There's nothing like it. And still today, you know, 17 years later, of the top 10 brands, Kind is the only one whose ingredients you can see and pronounce, is the only one that leads with nutrient-dense ingredients. And you can understand why, because sugar costs like, and refined carbohydrates, like refined flours, cost 25 to 37 cents a pound. And whole ingredients like almonds can cost three to $6 a pound and, or, or cashews, or it's much, much more expensive to use whole ingredients. But, you know, that's what helps you. You and I were talking about products that are low glycemic index that when you eat almonds, they're so nutrient dense that you it doesn't spike up your blood sugar levels. It keeps you pretty steady. So for us, it's really, really important to, create products at any time, whatever you eat from kind, we still today, we have over a hundred products now in seven different uh, areas of the supermarket. And all of them, the kind promise is that all of them lead with nutrient dense ingredients. And by the way, my failures of PeaceWorks are directly correlated to my successes of kind because at, at PeaceWorks, I had no strategy. I, I had all the passion, but none of the strategy. So it was just like hammering against walls and, and spread too thin. And so I was developing products too quickly that didn't have an obsession with keeping the brand guardrail strict. At Kind, we've been very obsessive about keeping the Kind promise so you know what you can expect from Kind. At PeaceWorks, I was all over the place trying to do too many things. That's such a good point, though, what you just said. Like, I, I talk about this, too, that the difference between truly successful, really successful, wildly successful people is they tend to uh, reflect the losses and absorb the wins. And when they have a failure, they go through a sequence of, I have failed. I am not a failure. I shall extract what I need to learn from this failure and I will succeed the next time. And they they tend to broaden the very definition of success to encompass the failure, right? They just widen the boundaries. Like, okay, this failure now needs to be encompassed within my overall journey. 
I think I always find that's the difference. Sometimes it looks a tad bit delusional, right? Like, I mean, that should erect you, you know, the most wildly successful people I find have a touch of that, but truly you need to never be enmeshed uh, with your identity with a specific failure, right? Because- But also it's important to appreciate that you and I can wax poetic about it right now. Right, true. When you're going through that failure, it's okay to be depressed as hell. I mean, I had moments. I'm still like, I'm like, oh God, I'm such an imposter. I got to lift myself back up again. No, it's a daily battle, you know? Yeah. But and, and you know, there were moments when I didn't see the light, like literally I didn't see the light. When I was at Peace Rocks, I had my basement apartment that was windowless and my studio apartment that was covered by all the boxes that I had bought in a tiny, tiny place. And light literally didn't get through to the basement. Uh, to, to get to my headquarters, which was the basement, you had to go through the trash compactor and through the laundry room. And then I, I was renting this windowless basement where I was there for several years and literally there was no light. And um, when your jars arrive and they're all broken and there goes your $2,000 of inventory and that's it, you have no more money in the bank. Or when you get the product wrong and people don't want to buy it, like it's easy to right now reflect on it but back then you're understandably oh my god i mean you know i remember having moments where i literally when i was 26 27 where i cried and i was like i had moments of like just letting it out to myself all alone and then you know i picked up and i uh i just kept trying and i eventually figured it out I remember we I had launched a big in a huge soccer tournament you know we had clearly we had gotten in over our skis and we had put all these matches on at the same time all over the world. And I was like praying that suddenly people were going to show up at the gate the day before. I, I kept being told that soccer buyers are a late buying crowd. I'm like, please, God, let that be true. And I remember standing at, at the gate just like looking for people to show up like they're not showing up. Like we're going to lose millions of dollars. And I remember in the middle of the night, like shaking like a rat, like actually shaking. Like I've been up for like three days. Like this is such a catastrophe. And then like. You just have to survive another day. I think the mere act of survival is underrated. People don't realize how much success is about persistence. I know it seems cliche, but like the mere refusal to submit to the circumstances and just go another way. But to your point, the days that sometimes I look back at what I have gone through at those moments of failure, it's horrifying to look at. Like, you know, I cannot believe that I actually got up the next day. But it's, I love telling people that too. The only overnight successes happen when you're not watching, right? Like that you just weren't paying attention to it. But I want to ask you about something real. I'm always fascinated about. You then have eventually it takes off in a huge way. You have an opportunity for an exit, which you take advantage of. And I forget if it was a partial stake or a full stake, but I want to understand the decision to have an exit and then you go back and buy it again, which I which I love. Like my favorite story in business is what. So just if you could condense that, because now I'm completely monopolizing your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, these decisions are very complex and they you know, sometimes people turn them into like single headlines, but they're much more complex. But I will say that the long-term commitment has always been there. Like I, I've, I never, when I launched Kind, it never crossed my mind that I'm going to turn around and sell it. It, it was just not in my mindset. I was trying to build something awesome that people would love, that would solve my problem. I was just thinking about solving that problem. And I think the best companies with the best products or services are the ones that are really obsessing about what does your community want you to, how do you solve that problem, and just obsess about that. And then things work themselves out. Eventually, you create that value if you are really solving the problem better than others. But I think what you're referring to is 
when I brought in an investor that bought it 37.5% of kind. Mm. And when, when I brought them in, I didn't know better. When I negotiated with them, they had the right. I, they're like, okay, we're going to help you grow. Because I did it myself, Matt, from, you know, I started with $10,000 and I did it myself for the many, many years. And then by 2008, what was interesting about my business is it was growing and it was cash flow positive and profitable. And I still couldn't finance it myself because what happens is that you're paying taxes, but your taxes, when you add all the in, if you're growing really fast, you need more inventory, you need more accounts receivable, you need more accounts, you need more uh, working capital. And so even if you're profitable, you're paying taxes. At least I was in my situation because I had a, Back then, I think it was an S-corp, so it was flowing through to me. So I was paying taxes, but I could barely take any money, let alone grow for the inventory. So I needed, eventually, as I was growing really fast, I needed a partner, an investor. And so um, they invested the total that Kind ever brought in in our entire history. You know, we're a multi-billion dollar company today. We sell over a billion dollars uh, in revenues across the world. What do you think is the total that I ever raised uh, for Kind? I'm gonna I'm gonna guess five million. Five point two million. You really? make it so boring to tell us. I'm so sorry. I'm supposed to say two hundred million. That is how clairvoyant I am. I actually did not know that, but I don't know where I get it from. It's like a spidey. The total story. we ever the total we ever raised in our entire history was five point two million. I also then sold some of my shares to my partner uh, to to take some chips off the table because I had a, a baby coming on the way and I didn't have money. I didn't have a nest egg. So I sold some shares, but so I sell 37.5% of the company exchange for $5 million for, um, for to put into the company and around 10 or $11 million that I uh, took for the first time that I, I had like a nest egg. And in that negotiation, we agreed that five years later, they had the right to sell the company or to sell their stake, but practically forced me to sell the company. And that was a terrible thing that I did. And I encourage all entrepreneurs to be careful because you never know. Five, I thought, okay, fine, five years, I'll sell it. But guess what? I was loving what I was doing and I didn't want to sell it. So that's what drove the decision. It was, it was not uh, that the primary decision is that I enjoyed what I was doing. I, I felt that there was a lot more for kind to do. And my investor had a short uh, vision, not short vision, uh, had a timetable that they had to meet because they had to get out within five years because these funds have to get out. And so I ended up buying them back. And that was heady and difficult because I had to identify, you know, they put in 16, well, was it 16 million? Yeah. They put like $16 million and they got hundreds of million dollars back. And I didn't have that money. I had to get a loan. And obviously that was, that was not easy, but I also thought ahead. I knew, I knew that I would be able to then continue growing and then sell that stake for more if I believed in myself. And it turned out to be right. So they, I think the company back then, I don't remember the precise numbers, but I think that they got a 17x return. $600 million valuation and then it went to... Yeah, it was like 700 Now it's, it's yeah. obviously much Well, you know, I like the story, not so much for the hubris. The hubris is amazing. It's more, um, the, the case in point is like, the number one thing you have insight into is your own capacity. 
and what you are going to accomplish. And people underestimate betting on yourself. That's the safest thing to bet on, right? And you were there and said, like, I know this is going to work out because I know what I'm, what I'm capable of doing. So I just love the, the ability to be that self-possessed and just go all in, get the cash to buy them out. And But to any entrepreneurs that are listening, I don't want them to get in trouble. I also had a little bit of a hedge because I, um, I took a loan, but then very shortly thereafter, I didn't want to take so much risk. And very shortly thereafter, I sold a, a smaller piece to a next investor that could help me take it to the next right. level. So I wasn't huh? carrying hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. It was too risky for me to do that. So I found a way to hedge that. And then, you know, I could have probably made even more money if I had kept all that debt. But each person is different. You just need to feel what's comfortable for you. But what's most important is you need to find what gives you meaning and what you enjoy. And I do think in our society, being more long-term oriented pays off and people don't tend to realize that a lot of people are just trying to flip things and if you just really believe in your brand and just nurture it and take it then things will take care of itself more than if you're just taking shortcuts and eventually yeah. that my partner's always saying a line he's always don't be a grasshopper it's sort of true like just don't hop from thing to thing even though it's entertaining let's talk about shark tank right we <laughs> share that share that in common i'll just ask you flat what made you want to go on or you know what, what how did it fit into your life and What's well, I they invited me. I I had always loved watching Shark Tank. I find it a, such a clever show. I I love watching it with my kids and then asking them questions about math, asking questions about business, asking questions about life, about values. It's a super entertaining and educational show, and it touches entrepreneurship. So I've always loved Shark Tank. And had I thought, oh, I would like to be there, yeah, probably in the back of my mind I had thought about it, but I had never actively pursued it. I didn't even think I was worthy of it. And then they reached out to me, uh, not this spring, but last spring. And I'm like, where do I sign on? I mean, I was very excited and very honored to be invited. So it was for me a no brainer. I find it. And some people that know me are like, Daniel, why did you do that? Like, you're the kind guy. Shark Tank is not kind. That's not true. It's very upfront and there is some tough negotiations but it is an extraordinarily kind show the executive producers as you know matt they're very thoughtful and mindful they don't do underhanded stuff they're really like they really take the long view also the shark tank community like the the producing team and all of the team that work there it really is like a family they have very high values and every one of the sharks is very authentic and yeah mr wonderful will like said the way it is but that's also kind having the courage to say what you believe and um my experience with shark tank is it's a super ethical show where the sharks really they play top guys but in the end they're actually helping a lot, a lot yeah of i agree that was my when i first went on too i was like i sure hope this is you know when you're when you finally realize around age eight or nine there is no santa claus i was like i sure hope this show is authentic because i've been watching it really my son and and I, I agree with you. It's a wonder. Holly Jacobs, all the great people on the show, and Clay, and those people. They, it's like an institution. You know, there's almost a, a degree of stewardship happening with that show, right? There's a degree of purity that is that is refreshing. And once you become part of, it's also nerve wracking as all hell. As I'm sure you remember the first time you were on. It is nerve wracking, and it is not it? Like prepare no, you. They do not. Yeah. There's no onboarding. Like, oh, and no one's like letting you get a word in. You know, when you first start, right? It's yeah. like, it's, <laughs> But, and you know, Matt, as you can tell from our conversation, both you and I are very comfortable asserting ourselves. But when you're in the tank in front of four other sharks and the TV is watching and the 
entrepreneurs coming in and you need to just factor so many things in. I have a question for you. After you filmed, did you go through several days of digestion and trying to decompress? Because for me, it took me days after it was like, you know, like in the, Jason Alexander is actually a dear friend of mine and he plays George in, in Seinfeld. And he like, in that episode where he's like, oh, I should have said this, you know, he has a comeback oh, 24 hours later. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like did I, that happen to you? I, I had a number of one, I'm not gonna lie, going into it, I was definitely very nervous. Like just so much pressure on myself to do it right. And then like you're, to your point, a little bit horrified that there is no onboarding really, and no one is trying to make space for you to get in. And I'm thinking, how are you trying to convince the entrepreneur to do a deal with you? Co compete against these people won't give you a word edgewise. Look charismatic for a camera, and you don't even know what that might mean because you haven't been on the other side of one. And then do the math in your head, like all these things. But to your point, afterwards, so many emotions, like very emotional. I remember I was with my wife, and she had gone through this journey with me, and like we were in the airport, and I got teary. Like that was unbelievable. Like. We were just on Shark Tank, but a lot of like, oh, I didn't show my first personality. You know, I'm not that nice. Like, I also have a, an edge to me. I didn't get into it with Kevin. I say the second time I did it, though, I felt like I never cared if I ever went back on again. And I was purely myself. And it was nice to experience the unadulterated joy of being comfortable in your own skin. I truly I, I had that, a slightly different feeling. I kept feeling, wow, did I show too much of my because in the first season, I, I don't want to tell too much because it's uh, it hasn't. But I'll, I'll say something, John. In the first season, there was a big surprise that I took a deal from Mark. That he tried to compete with me in a deal, and I took it. And you know, Mark is tough, and it's hard to take a deal from him. And so that was a great feeling. In the this last season, he took several from me, and I was so furious. And I was trying to stay myself, but I almost felt like, did I become something that I'm not? Because the dynamics are competitive and I always do want to be an authentically kind person. I strive, all of us are human beings, all of us make mistakes, I can lose my temper too. But I actually felt, you know, did I, was I too much of a jerk? And I had to call Clay and he's like, Daniel, come down, you were fine. But uh, so funny, I felt a little bit of that too. Like I got heated with something and took something from Kevin and, and I, I didn't, I was still myself, you know, because I kept auditing, like, are you just trying to be a caricature? I was still myself, but it's definitely gets real edgy. And so if you're new to the environment, you're like, were we really fighting? <laughs> like, do we really hate each other now? Like, or are we kind of. I know, because the, what's interesting about Shark Tank, it's very authentic. People always wonder, is it your money? Yes, it's your money. Is it true that you don't know anything about entrepreneurs before that? Yes, it's true. Everything is real, it's very authentic. But the one thing that's fascinating is that. You're in the shark tank, you get out of the shark tank and the next one, people reset. And it's easier for the guys that are the long time sharks to do that, that maybe for you and for me, like some last one, Mark was like underhanded with me or I felt that he like took a deal from me. And then the next one, he wants to do a deal with me. And I'm like, it's, 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 a, it's a challenging journey. Now let me ask you a question. So you had, you know, you had been below the radar and building the company, and you know, those who know, 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 knew of you, right? But you weren't a public figure. Did you have to deal with anyone questioning your motives or like wondering if you're showboating or you know, or did you get any of that jealousy in your life? Or I'm just curious. I had some of that, so I'm curious if you had any of that. You mean related to Shark Tank or in general? Yeah, being on Shark Tank, suddenly you're a public figure. Why are you stepping yeah. out? Is that a good idea? You know, 
it's never crossed my mind and I'm a very introspective person, but if people don't like it, I try to be myself and do what I, yeah. I think I'm giving back to the community. I have a lot of entrepreneurs that take a ton of time trying to help out. I, I want to give back. I wish I could do more, but I just can't. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book called Do the Kind Thing to try to help entrepreneurs and I try to help wherever I can, but it's, it's just very hard to keep up. And Shark Tank is, for me, one of the ways I obviously do a lot of giving back through my charity work but uh, and my social enterprises. But Shark Tank for me is A, a ton of fun. I enjoy it a lot. It's for me an intellectual challenge. I just really find it intellectually super rewarding. And I find it super stimulating and I love it. And uh, I'm, I'm very bad with social media. It's not something I don't enjoy doing social media all the time. It's very hard. It's, I, I have to try because I understand this is the world we're living in. No, but I'm not good at stuff. But when I'm on Shark Tank, on in the tank, or I'm coaching entrepreneurs, I feel very comfortable in that environment and in that ambit. And, you know, if somebody thinks I'm a show of whatever. Okay. Good for you. I want to, uh, I'm monopolizing you. Do you have a few minutes for some questions? Because a bunch of questions have come in. If you Whatever have, you want. All right, do it. All right, Heather, let's throw up a couple of questions that you've been uh, curating. Can you see that, or do you want me to read it out loud? This one that I can see? Yeah, from yeah, yeah. 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 You said when you started, you had no idea can we become this big. What would you say is the one thing that got you here? I mean, I think values. Values, like doing what's right even when people are not watching, or trying to do what's right when people are not watching. All of us as human beings rationalize things. I mean, one thing that I've learned from the last five years of watching my friends on the left, my friends on the right, my friends in the center, everybody, and myself and my own behaviors, that all of us as human beings rationalize things to make them consistent with our uh, best interests. Like, so if, you know, somebody's in the oil industry and somebody finds out that there's some harm to the environment, they're going to find a way to explain what, what they're doing is right. Or if they're selling cigarettes, they're going to find, like I have this guy that sells, um, actually I won't go there because I'm too close. I don't want to um, out him. But every single one of us, whatever it is, like I, I sell almonds and almonds are good for you. And I'm 100% certain that almonds are good for you. I have zero doubt. But if somebody tomorrow were to tell me almonds are bad for you and show me a study, it'd be very hard. My instinct would be, to dismiss that, right? My instinct would be to prove them wrong. It's just called affirmation bias, confirmation bias. And we live through it. We as human beings are wired that way. So given that we have that trait as human beings, making the right choices at the beginning can make for a much more frictionless life because you will find yourself having to rationalize what you do. You might as well do the right thing from the beginning and do something that really gives you meaning, that you really care about, and, and that you're trying to do it the right way because it'll be much easier to enjoy your journey. Um, so I think for me, that would be the number one, but I don't want to be so poetic and not acknowledge hard work, just working harder than the other creativity. Uh, what you call, what you said, Matt, introspection, like being your own worst critic, but then also being forgiving to yourself, finding that balance when things are going well, be a tougher critic to yourself when you're down be more forgiving of yourself. Yeah, I think for me, I would say, and I this is not just rhetoric because I've tested it out since I was 16 years old, that I really believe that every uh, cri crisis opens an aperture to a parallel universe 
where things are being done differently and better. And I've gone from anytime now something bad happens after I process it, I then get excited and look for the aperture that just opened, right? So when how, I how long does that take you? Because I just want to be acknowledge that for most people, there has to be a time between the first and the second. I mean, I think my view of the world is now upside down. And it doesn't take very long, honestly. Like I, I remember when I had testicular cancer, which is a pretty big deal, right? And and for three days, I thought I might die. So it was horrifying. But then once I thought I wasn't going to die, I said, like, number one, isn't that great? I'm not going to die. Two, I'm not going to live. Yeah, I, I'm going to live. Not only that, I'm probably the only guy who has had testicular cancer, who had a GED and then went to college when he was 16. I am now N of one. You know what I mean? And that makes me unique and special. And by the way, I am so heavy right now. I'm the only guy to go through radiation treatments and put on like 40 pounds. So I'm going to use this time in my life to run some marathons and finally get my weight on it. Like every single time, like even during COVID and this crisis, as hard as it's been, like there is always an aperture. So I seek that out. And as a result, I have never been defeated. And like, I, I believe we always have the last word until we take the last breath. And like, I just, I, I never, you could never talk me out of that. So maybe it's a little defiance. Maybe it's because I needed to, you know, I went through a lot of desperate stuff when I was a kid, but, but, uh, but that doesn't mean each episode ends well, but the overall story can, can, you know, end well, but I let's have what else do you got, Heather? So many great questions. People love you, as you know, Daniel. Let's you want me to read this one from Inda sure. Sari? Happy can joint live and love your topics. What do you advise for first step to introduce your product to get good impression? Thank you, Matt and Daniel. Mm. So consumer product goods, unlike tech goods, your first impression is everything. If you disappoint someone, they're not going to try you ever again. So get it right before you bring it up live. Like really work really hard. Think carefully about what you want to accomplish. Do a ton of testing with consumers, live testing yourself directly. Be your own worst critic as you evaluate your product or service. And just really, really obsess about making sure that you can bring something to the marketplace that is better than the competition. Your standard should not be, is it good enough? Your standard cannot be, is it better than some of these guys? Your standard, realistically, for you to win, has, is it better than everything else out there? It's a very high standard. It's a very tough standard. But in our marketplace, that's very efficient. If you're, if you're just good enough, you're probably not going to make it because the shelves only have so much space. So you have to be the best at what you do. And now you can have a, a particularly narrow proposition. Uh, and with the internet, it provides a lot of opportunities for people to provide more uh, surgically designed products that appeal to a particular need. Uh, but you really want to make sure that you put your best foot forward and that you don't cut corners or sacrifice in, in, in doing so. All right, Colton, what are some of your favorite books you've read? Uh, have you had mentors that provide a large impact to you? And do you have a daily morning routine? So let's break up those so we have time for a few more. What's, what's a good book? If you have one book that you want to recommend, what would it be? Um, I mean, I tend to only remember the book that I just read. Oh, by the way, me too. <laughs> so right now reading Sapiens, which I find very interesting. It's an anthropological book. Right before I read, uh, and when I say read, I read a lot, but not books. Books I do on Audible because I, I just don't have enough time. I read a lot of books to my kids. Uh, right now we're doing a, reading a book about how to raise dogs because my son insists that he wants to raise dogs. But, uh, but in terms of uh, my last book, I read The Great Influenza by Mr. Barry. I think it's Jim Barry or John Barry. 
And it was shocking to me, Matt and Colton, how much a hundred years have gone by and basically it's the same story. Like a lot of the lessons from a hundred years ago could have been the lessons for today. A lot of the things that we're doing wrong, we did wrong a hundred years ago. Um, mentors is super important. Um, I very much owe uh, a lot of my growth to mentors. First was my father, who was my biggest mentor ever. And when I started, founded PeaceWorks, I created a board of 11 advisors that it was Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's. I got him to join and he was so kind to me and many other people that cared about what PeaceWorks was trying to do from a social perspective that, that invested their time to help me. And throughout my life, I've always tried to surround myself with people that I find smarter than me and more knowledgeable than me. And like Fred Schaufeld is one of my mentors. I, I don't know if you know him, Matt, but he's like so bright and uh, so kind. And he's just, uh, I just have a lot of mentors that I'm very grateful for. Hmm. And daily morning routine, I'll skip because I don't have anything particularly interesting. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you go. But before we go, I'm so excited to, uh, to, to, to show the, uh, I got your bars. These are unbelievable. My kids are going crazy. You're now you've now invaded my the uh, frozen food section, right? And uh, frozen bars, you all have to try them. We were having this great conversation before we started. I have a start gone really deep and walking out on uh, monitoring my blood glucose level as a way to lose weight. And a company called Levels Health. So I'm now a cyborg. I walk around with this all the time and I check it. And we had a great conversation about how important it is to keep your glucose levels down if you want to control your weight and how your your products are focused with that in mind, right? That you don't have artificial sugar and you're really focused on great whole products. So uh, yeah. I every one of our nut bars has a low glycemic, in the, uh, low glycemic index, which means that your blood sugar doesn't spike up. I haven't done that test on the kind frozen, but everything we make, we have over a hundred products. They're all designed to, they all lead with nutrient dense ingredients. We're the only company in the world at our scale that we know of that 100% of the snacks we make, 100% of the healthy snacks we make, lead with nutrient-dense ingredients. Well, I think I'm sure it's pretty pretty good because while obviously you have carbohydrates in here, you have a good amount of uh, a good amount of uh, uh, no. The the kind frozen only it has like only 180 calories. I think nine to eleven grams no, of sugar. Grams of carbs. These ones only have five grams of sugar, which is less than a teaspoon. Yeah. No, that's that's all. What made you go into frozen? It was a dream of ours for many years. And then, as you know, we partnered uh, with Mars for them to help us grow globally and also into new categories. And they had the technology and the expertise. And it was a, a true uh, joint partnership, a joint effort. And we would have not been able to crack the code had it not been because of our partnership with them. It's probably one of my proudest things in my partnership with um, with Mars because the, the, the product is a true testament of what we can achieve together. It's it's an amazing product. It's really creating a lot of waves, and uh, and it was done through this partnership. Why don't we end on this one? And I'll, I'll let you have the word. And uh, uh, any advice on ways people can be kind to one another during and after the up to upcoming election? It's a great question, Kian, and thank you for asking it. That's a great question. I, you know, I I gathered together about. 30, 40 business leaders for us to think about what we can do. And we're struggling with our, our role to try to heal society. But there's one colleague of ours that said, assume positive intentions. And I think it's something we should do like more of, like assume positive intentions. I personally 
do not like Trump. I think he doesn't have any of the values that represent me. But I know family members and um, team members that support Trump and they're amazing people and I love them and I respect them. And so I think that it's time to heal our country. I, you know, I'm supporting Joe Biden. I joined his small business council, even though I'm an independent and I hate politics as a general principle. I think in terms of protecting our democracy and our rule of law. And, and I do think that Joe Biden is going to bring us together and try to be a president for all of us and, and not be polarizing. But I think all of us as human beings have a role to play here in, in listening to one another, in assuming positive intent and in trying to learn from the other and try to listen uh, to other sources of news and try to open um, our hearts and our eyes to, to just try to understand that none of us have the absolute truth. Yeah, I, well said. I, I feel the same way. I, you know, back in 2016, I got involved supported Hillary for that very reason. I just felt, I remember saying at the time, the preservation of the Republic is more important than lower taxes or anything else. You could just sort of see how it was going to devolve. But now that we're where we are at, I do think there needs to be a reset in society. A lot of seals were broken that should never have been broken. Question, the questioning of the truth that there is no objective truth. Like the age of, of moving away from reason, uh, this sort of everyone can go ahead and just advocate their own position. I just think there needs to be some reconciliation and a reset hopefully next year. Um, I, mean, I would love to return to a place where news can be more objective. Even I was even looking at CNN, which is where I turn to. If you notice, half the coverage is them reporting on their reaction to things. Like we've kind of, we've devolved a bit. And One of the things I'm very excited about uh, Biden as president is that we won't need to talk about who the president is, you know, every single day and every single minute. Right. Like, just, space. Yeah, like just return to normalcy for a little, little bit. I think it will be very healthy, but we'll see. But either way, we need to defend our democracy and make sure that we uh, respect the law and the constitution and that we all work together uh, to try to listen to one another and to make sure that rule of law and our constitution, you know, when you pledge allegiance in Canada, you pledge it to the queen in Great Britain, you pledge it to the queen or king or whatever. In the United States, you pledge it to the constitution. Right. There is no, you know, the president and all other government officials are there to serve the people and, and, and to pledge an oath to the constitution. It's a very rare concept that we don't, shouldn't take for granted. There, this is not a monarchy and we all need to uh, put the constitution above all. All right. Well, so good to have you. By the way, I know everyone's now watching. They want more of you. Fortunately, you can get more of you on Shark Tank this season on Fridays at 8 p.m. on uh, ABC. And, uh, and I have a LinkedIn channel and I have social yeah. media. And I yeah, do we, gotta build, we, gotta build, we have to build you up so more people get exposed to your to Yeah, your Instagram and Twitter, Daniel Lubetsky. And uh, I hope that you can uh, follow me, join me, whatever that's called. All right, you're the best. Thank you for spreading kindness. We'll be sure to buy your bars, and it's just been great talking to you. Thank you, Matt, and thanks to everybody. That All right, take care. Bye, everybody. See you soon.